U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by XO, Steven. Hey, Steven. Hey there, Captain. And everyone else. Matching energy. Yay. This feels <laughs> weird. Yeah. Should we go back to normal? Let's. And not, okay. not take in that much sugar ever again. <laughs> All right. So we are starting on the Shenandoah Valley. This happened in 1864 to 65 on the Eastern Theater of the American Civil War. Ready to get underway? Well, I'm ready for the Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah Rivers. Civil war's on, going on for years. I'm gonna end this parody now, cause I haven't thought of any more words. Alright, maybe that'll be a ringtone. <laughs> 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 Alright, so, the Shenandoah Valley was actually a critical region for the Confederates. It is one of the most important agricultural regions in Virginia. And it was a prime invasion route to the north. Grant, he hoped that a army from the Department of West Virginia under a guy named Franz Sigel could seize control of the valley, moving up it, you know, with 10,000 men to destroy the railroad center at Lynchburg. Sigel immediately suffers a defeat at the Battle of New Market on May 15th and then is replaced by a guy named David Hunter, who wins at the Battle of Piedmont on June 5th. Hunter then begins burning the Confederacy's agricultural resources, as well as the homes of some of the more prominent confederacy guys and this gives him the nickname black dave well not fond of the nickname but uh anybody following along with the u.s navy history podcast drinking game captain's doing it right now take a drink we've had some arson already well you ready for your next bit of arson oh boy he also burned the virginia military institute yep that's another drink <laughs> <laughs> So Robert E. Lee is besieged in Petersburg, and he is concerned about Hunter's advances. So he sends Jubal Early's corps to sweep the Union forces from the valley. And if it was possible to menace Washington, D.C., he was hoping to make Grant dilute his forces around Petersburg. You know, so he could break the siege. So, just to interject real fast, I know Virginia, at the start of the Civil War, it was one state. There was no West Virginia in Virginia, it was just Virginia. Yeah. What, what is now West Virginia was, for the most part, sympathetic to the Union cause, and after that area was liberated, it became its own state and joined the Union. Shenandoah, yeah. is that in Virginia, Virginia, or West Virginia? That is, I will give you a map. Okay. And there's a map right there. 
Hmm. You want to describe that to our listeners? Well, there are blue lines and red lines and some dots with arrows on them. Yes, but there's also names, place names, to give you a lo- information. Whoa, 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 whoa. I have to, I have to read for this job? Well, yeah. Okay, well, you're going to laugh at this. Um, It's kind of out of focus for me, so I can see the Blue Ridge Mountains are clearly where <laughs> it seems like the geographical divide and state line divide is between West Virginia and Virginia proper. Um, So I can only assume the Shenandoah Valley is either on the left side or the right side of those mountains, but... uh. It's more on the West Virginia side of the mountains. Okay, okay. You gotta do the reading for you now, too? It's not so much that as uh, my banjo internet makes it look very pixelated. Or maybe it's just the map is very out of focus in the picture. It could just be your eyes, too. Maybe you need to go see the optometrist again. Oh, but I don't like having that windy, blowy thing in your eyes. It's so uncomfortable. Well, I mean, you, you can practice by having uh, your 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 doggo lick your eyeballs, and somehow that doesn't sound better. <laughs> so, early gets off to a very good start. He drives back Hunter's forces in the Battle of Lynchburg, and he drives down the valley without any opposition. He goes around Harper's Ferry and crosses the Potomac River advancing into Maryland. So Grant, he sends a force under Major General Horatio G. Wright and George Crook to reinforce Washington and to go after Early. Then comes the Battle of Monocray on July 9th of 1864, And Early defeats a smaller force under a guy named Lou Wallace near Frederick, Maryland. But this battle also slows him down, which allows time for reinforcing the defenses of Washington. Early then attacks a fort on the northwest defensive perimeter of Washington, which was Fort Stevens on July 11th through the 12th. And he's not successful, so he has to draw back to Virginia. He then, you know, successfully fights a series of small battles in the valley throughout early August and prevents Wright's corps from returning to Grant at Petersburg. And you ready to drink? Yep. He also burns the city of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, goodness. The entire city. Yeah, this is in retaliation against Hunter's actions in the valley. Well, I know we didn't start the fire. (laughs) I see what you did there. Grant, he knows that Washington remains vulnerable because Early is still out there on the loose. So he goes and he finds himself a new aggressive commander. This was Major General Philip Sheridan. He was the cavalry commander of the Army of the Potomac. And he is given all the forces in the area, which is the Middle Military Division, which includes the Army of the Shenandoah. Sheridan, he starts slowly, mostly because of the impending presidential election that's coming up. So... 
he was told he had to do cautious approach. They wanted him to avoid any disaster that might affect the election to lead to a defeat of Lincoln. But after all that's done, in September, he starts moving much more aggressively. But election day isn't until November. Well, I mean, by that time, I think that his victory was assured. All right, I'll take it. Yeah. So he moves against Early in the battle, in the third battle of Winchester on September 19th, and the battle of Fisher's Hill on the 21st, the 22nd, and defeats Early. So Early is now pinned down, and the valley is open to the Union. So with the capture of Atlanta and Admiral David Farragut's victory at Mobile Bay, this doubly reassured Lincoln's election. So Sherman pulls back slowly down the valley and conducts a scorched earth campaign that, you know, ended when Sherman gets to the sea in November. Now, the goal of the scorched earth campaign, other than, you know, just burning stuff and making us drink, it denied the Confederacy the ability to feed its armies in Virginia. So Sheridan burned crops, barns, mills, and factories. An army can't fight on an empty stomach. That's true. The campaign finished at the Battle of Cedar Creek in October 19th of 1864. This was a surprise attack at dawn. Early routes two-thirds of the Union Army, but because of the Scorched Earth, the scorched earth campaign, his men were hungry and exhausted, and so a lot of his men went, fell out of ranks and started pillaging the Union camp, which gave Sheridan time to rally his troops and decisively defeat Early. In the late fall, Sheridan sends his infantry to assist Grant at Petersburg with his cavalry arriving in the spring. The men that Early had left rejoins Lee at Petersburg in December, while Early keeps a skeleton force until, you know, his inevitable relief in March, after he was once again defeated at the Battle of Waynesboro in Virginia. So we're going to move on to the Appomattox, 1865. So in January of 1865, Robert E. Lee becomes the general-in-chief of all the Confederate armies. But of course, this was way too late to help. He is besieged at Petersburg, and Grant attempts to either break or encircle the Confederate forces in a number of attacks going from east to west. Slowly, he cut all of the Confederate supplies except the Richmond and Danville Railroad entering Richmond and the Southside Railroad playing Petersburg. By March, the siege has taken a huge, huge toll on both of the armies. And Lee decides he's just going to get the hell out of there. So Major General John B. Gordon 
comes up with a plan to have the army attack Fort Stedman on the eastern end of the Union lines, forcing the Union to shorten their lines. Now, this is at first a success, but his forces, which were outnumbered by this time, is forced back by a counterattack. So Sheridan, he comes back from the valley and he's given the job of flanking the Confederate army. And this forces Lee to send forces under a guy named Major General George Pickett and Major General Fitzhugh Lee to defend the flank. Hey, Fitz is back. Woohoo. Grant then deploys his cavalry and two infantry corps under Sheridan to cut off Pickett's forces. Pickett and Fitz attacks first on March 31st at Dinwiddie Courthouse, and they do succeed in pushing the Union forces back, but they do not gain a decisive advantage. They have to withdraw their forces to Five Forks that evening. So on April Fool's Day, Sheridan launches another attack, but this wasn't just a joke. This was an actual attack. Oh. Yeah. He flanks Pickett's forces and destroys the Confederacy's left wing, capturing over 2,000 men. This victory means that Sheridan can now capture the South Side Railroad. So after the Five Forks victory, Grant orders a assault along the entire Confederate line on April 2nd. This is the Third Battle of Petersburg. This results in a lot of breakthrough. During the fighting, A.P. Hill was killed. And during the day and the night, Lee pulls his forces out of Petersburg and Richmond and heads west to Danville. This was where the fleeing Confederate government was heading. And then he turns south to meet up with General Joseph E. Johnston in North Carolina. The city of Richmond, which was the capital of the Confederacy, surrenders the next morning. At this point, it becomes a race between Lee and Sheridan. Lee tries to get supplies for his army, and Sheridan attempts to cut him off. At Sailor's Creek on April 6th, nearly a quarter of the Confederate army, which is about 8,000 men, was cut off and forced to surrender. Many of the Confederate supply trains are also captured. Grant writes to Lee, suggesting that surrender was really his last course of action. But Lee, being stubborn, keeps attempting to outmarch the Union forces. Lee's final attack at Appomattox on the morning of April 9th, he sends John B. Gordon to attempt to break the Union lines and reach the supplies that were in Lynchburg. They do push back Sheridan's cavalry for a, for a time, but when the cavalry breaks off, they find themselves in front of the full Union Five Corps. They are now surrounded on three sides, and Lee is forced to surrender 
to Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse. Yeah. And then the formal surrender ceremony takes place two days later. There are a few more minor battles and surrenders of Confederate armies, but Lee's surrender on April 9th pretty much marked the end of the Civil War. Lee rejected advice from his staff. His staff wanted his army to melt away into the countryside to continue the war as guerrillas. But Lee was like, no, we need to... The war's over. We need to start healing. We we lost. We gave her the college try. We got our asses kicked. Now we need to focus on rebuilding and repairing. Right. The, the battles are just army for this, so that is where we're going to leave that. But guess what? What? We are finally done in the East. Does that mean we're heading south? That means we are heading west. We're going to the Western Theater of the American Civil War. I mean, that only makes sense, going from east to west. It certainly does. It certainly does. Alrighty. So, let's get into the west, shall we? So... We're going to go jump into the early operations. This is June 1861 to January of 1862. So in the West, the focus early in the war was on two critical states, Missouri and Kentucky. The loss of either one would have been a crippling blow to Union, mostly because of the successes of Captain Nathan Lynn and his victory at Boonville, in June, Missouri stayed in the Union. The state of Kentucky had a pro-Confederate governor and a pro-Union legislator, so they were, like, right down the middle. So they declare neutrality between both sides. <laughs> this was violated on September 3rd when a Confederate general, Major General Leonidas Polk, occupies Columbus. His name was Leonidas. Yes. Did he only have 300 soldiers? I doubt that. Now, Columbus was considered key to controlling the lower Mississippi, so two days later, Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant, displaying, you know, the initiative that would characterize his career later, he sees Paducah. So... That means that neither one of them are going to respect the neutrality of the state. Uh, most of the state government will remain loyal to the Union. So the pro-Confederate parts of the legislator, they organize a separate government in Russellville and is admitted into the Confederate states. This was considered a victory for the Union because Kentucky never never formally sided with the Confederacy. And also, if the Union had been, had been prevented from maneuvering within Kentucky, the campaigns in Tennessee would have been much more difficult. So on the Confederate side, a guy named General Albert Sidney Johnston, he commanded all of the forces from Arkansas to the Cumberland Gap. And he was faced with the problem of defending a very broad front with a very inferior force. But 
he did have excellent communication systems, which allowed him to move his troops quickly to where they were needed. And under him, he had two very able guys named Polk and William J. Hardy. Johnson also had political support from secessionists in central and western counties, Kentucky, through a new Confederate capital at Bowling Green. This was set up by the Russellville Convention. This government was recognized by the Confederate government and admitted Kentucky into the Confederacy in December of 1861. Using the rail system resources of the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, Polk was able to quickly fortify and equip the Confederate base at Columbus. In the West, the Union military suffered from a lack of unified command. It was organized into three separate departments. The Department of Kansas under Major General David Hunter, the Department of Missouri under Major General Henry W. Hollick, and the Department of Ohio under Brigadier General Don Carl Buell. So, I mean, now you got three guys saying, we're in, I'm in charge, and they're going to start bickering and arguing over resources, and that's just going to make stuff a lot difficult. Yeah. A that, lot more that difficult. That never goes poorly at all. Yeah. And, you know, this was quite apparent in January because there was no strategy for the operations in the Western Theater that were agreed upon. They kept bickering and fighting. Buell, he was under political pressure to invade and hold pro-Union East Tennessee. He started moving slowly in the direction of Nashville, but achieved nothing more than minor victories in Middle Creek. Now, Mill Spring was a significant victory in a strategic sense because this broke the end of the Confederate Western defensive line and it opened the Cumberland Gap to East Tennessee. But, you know, this got him no closer to Nashville. So in Halleck, in Halleck's area, Grant went up the Tennessee River by attacking the Confederate camp near Belmont to divert attention from Buell but it did not happen. Instead, Grant kept asking to move against Fort Henry in Tennessee, and Halleck was like, okay, you know what, fine, just do it, because I don't want to hear you anymore. Stop asking, just go do it. <laughs> so that's going to move us to the Tennessee, Cumberland, and Mississippi rivers. Speaking of rivers... So Grant moves very quickly. He brings his troops up the Tennessee River towards Fort Henry on river transports on February 2nd. And his operations in the campaign were actually very, very well coordinated with the United States Navy flag officer, Andrew H. Foote. The fort was not well placed on a floodplain which means it was virtually indefensible against gunboats, and many of its guns are also underwater. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> because of the previous neutrality of Kentucky, the Confederacy was not able to build river defenses at, you know, more strategic locations inside the state. 
So they settled for a site just inside the border of Tennessee. So Brigadier General Lloyd Tillman, he withdraws almost all of his garrison on February 5th, moving them across 11 miles to east to the east to Fort Donaldson. So this leaves a skeleton crew manning the cannons. So Tillman fights an artillery duel with the Union squadron for nearly three hours before he figures out that further resistance was futile. So this opens up the Tennessee River for, for, for future Union operations into the south. So Fort Donaldson on the Cumberland River is a lot more defensible than Henry. And the naval assaults on the fort were largely ineffective. Grant's army marches cross-country in pursuit of Tillman and attempts immediate assaults on the fort from the rear. But they're not successful. And on February 15th, the Confederate forces under Brigadier General John B. Floyd, they try to escape and launch a surprise assault against the Union right flank. This was under Brigadier General McClernand. Now, his division was driven back, but it does not create the opening they wanted or needed to be able to slip away. And Grant, he recovers from this reversal quickly and assaults the Confederate right, which is now weakened. So now they are trapped in the fort and the town of Dover. So Brigadier General Simon B. Buckner surrenders his 11,500 men command and all of their guns and supplies that Grant really, really needed. So the victories at Henry and Donaldson were the first significant victories for the Union in the war. And the two major rivers become available for invasions into Tennessee. Well, it certainly took them a while, but well done. Yeah. Johnson's forward defense is now broken. And Polk's position at Columbus is now untenable. And he withdraws after Donaldson falls. Grant also cuts the Memphis and Ohio Railroad. That this had previously let the Confederacy move their forces laterally in support of each other. General Beauregard arrives from the east to support to report to Johnson in February, and he commands all Confederate forces between the Mississippi and Tennessee rivers. Beauregard plans to concentrate his forces in the vicinity of Corneth, Mississippi, and prepare for a offensive. Johnson moves his forces to concentrate with Beauregard's by the late March. Now, Halleck's preparations for the Union campaign does not go very good. He seemed more concerned with his standing in relation to the General-in-Chief George McClellan than he did with understanding how the Confederate Army was divided and could be defeated. He was making it personal. He was trying to make himself look good in the eyes of his boss more than planning and figuring out the best way to defeat 
the Confederate Army. So, Boyle, who is now in Nashville on a joint course of action, he sends Grant up the Tennessee River while he while he stays in Nashville. On March 11th, Lincoln he tells Halleck the he tells Halleck that he is now commander of all forces for the Mississippi River to Knoxville, which this brings the unity of command that they needed from the beginning. So Halleck, now in charge, he tells Buell to join Grant's forces at Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River. And on April 6, the combined Confederate forces, they surprise Grant's Army of West Tennessee with a massive assault at Pittsburgh Landing. This is the Battle of Sheola. On the first day of the battle, the Confederate attack drove Grant back against the Tennessee River. But they could not defeat him. Johnston becomes mortally wounded as he led an infantry charge. He was considered by Davis to be the most effective general in the Confederacy at that time. The next day, Grant receives reinforcements from Buell and launches a counterattack and drives the Confederacy back. But, just like in the East, Grant fails to pursue the enemy, and he gets a lot of criticism for this. Hmm. Yeah. And, of course, for all the casualties he sustained, almost 24,000. Oh my, that's, that's not jump change. Yeah. This was more than all previous battle, American battles combined. This was the highest cost so far. So the Union control of the Mississippi River got better and better. And on April 7th, while the Confederates were retreating from Shio, Union Major General John Pope takes out Beauregard and his force at Island Number 10 which opened the river almost as far south as Memphis. On May 18th, Admiral David Farragut captures New Orleans, which is, you know, the south's most significant seaport. Yeah, that was pretty important to them. Yeah. Major General Benjamin Butler occupies the city with a very, very strong military government. But, you know, when you bring in a military government, the civilian population is not happy. So, Beauregard had very, very little strength available to oppose the southward movement by Halleck. And he showed no drive to take advantage of the situation. So, he waited until he assembled a large army. Mm -hmm. He combined the forces of Wells Army of Ohio and Grant's Army of West Tennessee and Pope's Army of Corinth. This took four weeks to cover 20 miles, stopping nightly to entrench. So it took that long just because they were being so cautious. Yeah. But by May 3rd, he was within 10 miles of the city, but took three more weeks to get eight miles closer. 
And by this time, Halleck is ready to start a massive bombardment of the Confederate defenses. Beauregard sees all this and was like, if I make a stand here, this is going to cost us very dearly. So you know what? We're going to get just get the heck out of here. And they leave on the night of May 29th. So because of Halleck reorganizing the army, Grant became the second in command, which was pretty much a powerless position. And Halleck reshuffles all the divisions from the three armies into three wings. Now, when Halleck moves east to replace McClellan as general-in-chief, remember that guy? I do, I do. Grant is able to resume his field command, which is now named the District of West Tennessee. Hmm. Halleck, just before he leaves, disperses his forces, sending well towards Chattanooga, Sherman to Memphis, and one division to Arkansas and Rosencrantz to hold a covering position around Corinth. His reasoning for this was that Lincoln wanted to capture eastern Tennessee and protect the Unionists in the region. Okay, so for this campaign, we do have significant naval action. You want to hear about some of it? Let's hear about it. All right, so first we have the Battle of Fort Henry. So Fort Henry itself was a five-sided, open-bastioned earthen structure covering about 10 acres. It was on the eastern bank of the Tennessee River near Kirkman's Old Landing. It is about one mile above Panther Creek and about six miles below the mouth of the Sandy River and Standing Rock Creek. In May of 1861, Isham G. Harris, who was the governor of Tennessee, he appoints the state attorney, Daniel S. Dolson, as a brigadier general and told him to build fortifications on the rivers of Middle Tennessee. That's what you need, is a lawyer in charge. <laughs> but of course. Dolson, he does find suitable sites, but unfortunately they were inside Kentucky, and Kentucky still neutral. So he moves upriver to just inside the Tennessee border and selects a site of the fort that would bear his name on the Cumberland River. The Colonel Johnston of the Tennessee Corps of Engineers approved the site. So construction of Fort Donaldson begins, and Donaldson moves 12 miles west of the Tennessee River and selects the site of Fort Henry naming it after Tennessee Senator Gustavus Adolphus Henry Sr. Yes, Gustav, the German general. He's named after him. No kidding. Yep. Since Fort Donaldson was part of the west bank of the Cumberland, he selected the east bank of the Tennessee for the second fort so that one garrison could travel between them and be used to defend both positions. That makes sense. It does. I mean, how likely is it that both positions are going to be attacked at the same time? That'd be crazy. They, they wouldn't do that. Yeah. So, Fort Henry is situated on low, swampy ground. 
dominated by hills across the river. On the bright side, it did have an unobstructed field of fire two miles downriver. Now, Donaldson's surveying team, a guy named Adna Anderson, who was a civil engineer, and Major William F. Foster from the 1st Tennessee Infantry, they strongly object to the site and tell Colonel Johnson to move it. And Johnson told them, no, we're building here. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I will sue you. We're, we're, we're doing it here. So the fort is designed to stop traffic on the river, not to withstand infantry assaults, not, and certainly not at the scale that armies would be built at during this war. So construction begins in mid-June using men from the 10th Tennessee Infantry and slaves. And the first cannon was test-fired July 12th of 1861. After this flurry of activity, the construction slowed quite a bit because forts on the Mississippi River had been given a higher priority for receiving men and artillery. So it wasn't until late December when additional men from the 27th Alabama Infantry arrived along with 500 slaves. They constructed a small fortification across the river on Stewart's Hill within artillery range of Fort Henry, and they named it Fort Hindman. This is the same time Brigadier General Lloyd Tillman assumes command of both Forts Henry and Dolson. At Fort Henry, they had approximately 3,000 to 3,400 men, not just three, they had more than three, and two brigades commanded by Colonels Adolphus Heinemann and Joseph Drake. They were armed primarily, get this, antique flintlock rifles from the War of 1812. Holy crap. Yeah, that's not good. That is... 17 guns are mounted in Fort Henry by the time the battle kicks off, 11 of them covering the river, and the other six positioned to defend from a land attack. There were two heavy guns, a 10-inch columbade and a 24-pounder rifle cannon, with the rest of them being 32-pound smooth bores. There were also two 42-pounders, but they didn't have any ammo for them. <laughs> so, you know, no ammo, no use. Yeah. So when the river was at normal levels, the walls of the fort rose 20 feet. And they were 20 feet thick at the base, sloping up to about 10 feet thick at the parapet. But in February, there were heavy rains. What happened to rivers when... They are heavy rains. Well, they have a tendency to flood, and bad things can happen if there's sudden floods. Yeah. The river rose, and most of the fort was underwater. This included the powder magazines. Oh, boy. Yeah. Now, the Confederates did deploy one additional defensive measure, which, at this point in warfare history was unique. They installed underwater mines 
This is mines anchored to the bottom below the surface of the water, so they cannot be seen. And they were placed in the main shipping channel, rigged to explode by touch. Now, they put in this ingenious defensive measure, and the rains came, the water level rose, which caused them to be ineffective. Okay. Poor guys. They actually were smart about something, and it rained. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So, February 4th and 5th, Grant lands his divisions in two different spots. He lands one three miles north on the east bank of the Tennessee River to prevent the garrison to be able to run away. And he lands a division on the east bank of the Tennessee River to prevent the garrison from escaping that way to be able to occupy the other fort. <laughs> but, you know, the battle was over before the infantry even saw any action. So Tillman realizes that it's only a matter of time before Fort Henry falls because only nine guns remained above water. Well, I mean, better nine than none? Yeah. So he leaves artillery and men in the fort to hold off the Union fleet. He takes the rest of his forces out of the area and sends them off to Fort Donaldson, 12 miles away. And then Fort Hyman was abandoned on worry 4th. And pretty much everybody except for a handful of men to man the cannons left Fort Henry on the 5th. The gunboats begin bombarding the fort on the 6th. And this was actually the first engagement for the Western Flotilla using the newly designed and very quickly constructed ironclad. He deploys the four ironclads he has in a line abreast. And this was followed by three wooden ships, which he held back for long-range bombardment, which also made them less effective, but it protected them against return fire. It was pretty much because of the low elevation of Fort Henry's guns that allowed the fleet to escape serious injury. The Confederate fire was able to hit the ships only where their armor was the strongest. One ship was seriously damaged and had a high casualty count when a 32-pound shot by chance penetrated the USS Essex and hit her middle boiler. Ooh. Yeah, it sent steam pretty much through half of the ship. And, you know, this is very hot stuff. Yeah. Yeah, 32 men are killed or wounded, which included the commander, William D. Porter. And this put his ship out of action for the rest of the campaign. The battle lasted about 75 minutes. Didn't last very long at all. Tillman surrenders to the fleet, which was about 400 yards away from the fort. <laughs> a small boat from the fleet was able to sail directly into the fort and pick up Tillman for the surrender ceremony on board the Cincinnati. 
you know, this was a pretty good indication of how much flooding there was. Uh, 12 officers and 82 men surrendered. And the other casualties are estimated to be 15 dead and 20 wounded. The evacuating, the guys that evacuated pretty much left all of their artillery and equipment behind. Tillman is imprisoned, but he is exchanged on August 15th. Tillman writes in his report that Fort Henry was in a, quote, wretched military position. The history of military engineer records no parallel to this case. <laughs> so they're more or less saying, what idiot put it there? I want him drawn and quartered. It was him. He put it there, remember? <laughs> I will find someone else to blame for this blunder. <laughs> Grant sends a dispatch to Halleck saying, quote, Fort Henry is ours. I shall take and destroy Fort Donaldson on the 8th and return to Fort Henry. And Halleck then tells Washington, quote, Fort Henry is ours. The flag is reestablished on the soil of Tennessee. It will never be removed. Now, a funny antidote. If Grant had been cautious, like like a lot of the other generals in the army. Like, like pick a... Pick a U.S. Army general. McClellan. Yeah, yeah, he's the easy one to choose. <laughs> but if he had been more cautious and delayed his departure by two days, the battle never would have happened. Guys, where'd they go? They were right here. Well, on February 8th, Fort Henry was completely underwater. <laughs> so the North treated Fort Henry as a glorious victory, which, eh, I mean, it's a victory. Glorious? Yeah. But it's a victory. Yeah. On February 7th, the gunboats Cincinnati, St. Louis, and Essex returned to Cairo with their whistles blowing and flying Confederate flags upside down. Ha! And the Chicago Tribune wrote that the battle was, quote, one of the most complete and signal victories in the annals of the world's warfare. That's 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 pushing it a little bit, but you know what? You know what? Wartime propaganda to keep everybody's spirits up. You you do what you got to do. They can have it. Get just give it to them. I mean, this was also very early in the war. I'll give it to them. I'll give it to them begrudgingly, but I will. Okay. So that was the Battle of Fort Henry. How you feeling about that? Uh, I'm feeling like suddenly the army needs life preservers. They did in this case. They really did. They had to get out of there before they had to learn how to swim. <laughs> and we can't have the Army out swimming the Navy, even if it is the 1800s. Yeah. All right, so we're going to call that Finn for today. We have more battles to cover next time. Well, uh, we got five more battles. But uh, looking at the time, we are out of time. So we are going to honor one of our fallen angels with the help of HeroCards.us. So today we are going to honor pharmacist's mate, second class, Vito Thomas Accardi. He was stationed on the USS Eversole DE-404. 
he received the Navy Marine Corps Medal and the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was October 29, 1944, killed in action in the Liat Gulf off Samar Island, Philippine Sea. We actually don't know his age. So Vito Thomas Accardi is from Brooklyn, New York, and he served as a pharmacist mate second class aboard the USS Eversole DE-404 in the Pacific Theater of World War II. He took part in the battle for Liat Gulf in the Philippine Sea, which was the largest Navy battle of the war, involving more than 200,000 naval personnel. This was also the first time the American forces would witness organized Japanese aircraft kamikaze attacks. Author Wilford P. Deke, in the December 1966 issue of American Heritage, wrote, quote, The overall battle for Lyette Gulf, spread across a total area twice the size of Texas, was the greatest sea fighting in history. Every element of naval warfare, from submarine to aircraft, was involved. And when it was over, the Imperial Japanese Navy had ceased to exist as a fighting unit. The United States and her allies had, dis had undisputed control of the Pacific Ocean. So during the battle on October 29, 1944, two torpedoes fired from the Japanese submarine I-45, commanded by... Going to the XO with this one. <laughs> All right. Kawashima Mamoro. Punched into the side of the USS Eversole. Eversole's Lieutenant Commander George E. Merricks gave the order to abandon ship. As the Eversole quickly sank and the surviving crew dropped into the Philippine Sea, Accardi hurried to rescue crew members trapped in a damaged compartment. Quote, We had some casualties from the torpedo hits, and the heroic efforts of the able men made to get the wounded to safety were magnificent, said Lieutenant Commander Merricks. I saw Accardi who was paying no attention to his own safety, get to at least three men who were wounded out of the compartment. Petty Officer Accardi went down with the ship. For his selfless bravery, Accardi was posthumously awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal. His citation reads, The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Navy and Marine Corps Medal posthumously to pharmacist's mate, second class, Vito Thomas Accardi. Naval Serial Number 8147551. United States Navy for outstanding heroism and devotion to duty in assisting wounded men from a damaged compartment of the USS Eversole DE-404 after it had been hit by two submarine torpedoes when a ship, the USS Eversole, was severely damaged and sinking from enemy submarine torpedoes on 29 October 1944 during the Second Naval Battle of the Philippine Sea. Petty Officer Accardi immediately realized that the ship was sinking and the wounded men must be removed from the damaged compartment. Although suffering from shock and despite the immediate sinking of the ship, Petty Officer Accardi carried wounded men out of the compartment until he himself was trapped and went down with the ship. Due to Petty Officer Accardi's self-sacrifice, many men were saved who otherwise would have perished. The courage, judgment, and devotion to duty displayed by Petty Officer Accardi reflect great credit on the United States Naval Service. Pharmacist Mate Second Class, Accardi. Thank you. All right, XO, take us out. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If you did, we would love it if you left a review. Just saying your thoughts, what you liked, 
Anything you think we could do better? Like me speaking Japanese better? <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. It's been over a decade since I was taking classes in high school. Oh, I said me. Oh, well, it's a phonetic alphabet. It's pronounced exactly how it looks. Shut up. <laughs> if you want to reach out more privately to tell the captain that Japanese just has a much harder reputation than it deserves, you can reach out to us with our email, usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to ridicule us in a more public venue, we do have a Twitter handle, at usnhistorypod. Uh, we'll see if Twitter's still around by the time this episode airs. I think that joke's run its course, actually. Uh, it's I'm not hearing it anymore. We're not hearing it anymore? Twitter's gonna... No. Twitter's safe? Okay, we can scrub that. I don't know if it's safe, but the joke's just not going out anymore. All right, all right. You win this round, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we do have a Discord server. You can find the link in the show notes. We'd love to talk with you guys directly. Until next time, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everybody. See you later, folks. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-1-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-